Well, welcome to uh, Professor and the Hack uh, once again. We're up to episode 78. I remain the Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Uh, PVO, how are you? I'm good. Are you still stuck in ISO? I'm stuck in ISO. I haven't seen you for a long, long time, actually. It feels <laughs> kind of weird because, uh, because here I am. I'm still here. Uh, we'll talk about the Prime Minister being in ISO and in quarantine, um, uh, just locked up, just him and, and his personal photographer. Uh, that'll come a little later on. But um, Similar ISO to yourself, Hugh? Like he's <laughs> stuck in, is he stuck in a, in, in a single hotel room all on his own, or is, is he parading around uh, the lodge uh, in isolation uh, with many rooms to spare? I presume he gets to use uh, when he's not in the uh, in the in the walnut um, uh, uh, encased uh, libraries and, and, and rooms <laughs> of the lodge. He can have a little dip in the pool, perhaps. We're all in this together, Hugh. We're all in this We're together. All in this together. Well, he's the prime minister. I do recognise a difference in our status, um, even in an egalitarian society like our own. What about the difference in the status between you, Hugh, and uh, a former? Senator in Matthias Cormann, uh, who at I think a cost of over $4,000 a day uh, has an RAAF plane at his disposal as he works his way around Europe lobbying for a position on the OECD. Uh, I mean, you know, some people would probably argue that that's in the national interest. I find it ironic uh, that this is happening at the same time that the Air Force hasn't been used, largely hasn't been used to try to help get Australians back home. Uh, we've got a former senator uh, at relatively great expense using his own personal jet via the RAAF to lobby for a position that presumably he wants as much, if not more so, than the government uh, needs to have a former senator moving into a role like that. And not just a former senator, but for, you know, I, I believe he's the longest serving finance minister. And in the way of government books, the finance minister is traditionally the one who uh, is, casts the strictest eye on, uh, on all these ideas yeah, good point. that get put up by ministers. But uh, evidently he's, uh, he sees good value in himself uh, swanning around. So on you, Matthias. Half your luck. <laughs> Buddy. We're all in this together. Hugh. We're all in this together. We're all getting our jobs. Yeah, it's a good way, isn't it? The rest of us might head off to seek in increasing numbers and pound in our, our forlorn-looking CVs in the hope of employment in these difficult times. Uh, it's nice to have a, uh, a an RAF jet, as you say, to uh, wander wander around the uh, tapestried corridors of Europe as you as you flog yourself around. We're also all in this together when it comes to superannuation. We, we, we all get 15.4% super like the parliamentarians, don't we? And they would encourage us all to work our way towards that 15.4% super the same as they get so that we're all in this together. Is, is that where the debate has gone? Well, look, I mean, this, this is, you, you've made this point in a number of fora, if I may use that horrible word, but, uh, and rightly so, the uh, efforts by... At least some, I'm not sure how official it is as an effort, but it's certainly an undercurrent of an effort, and it's certainly pretty determined to deprive Australians, hardworking Australians, of the already legislated rise next July, from July 1 of superannuation from 9.5 to 10%, while they sit on their 15 plus percent themselves on the grounds that it's bad for the economy. Um, how do you square that circle? Do they have a point? Look, I'm against them breaking their election promise and repealing the legislation or delaying the legislation for the increase, and we can go through why. But I'm cognizant that there is there is an argument for it. I just don't agree with it. You know, their, their, their argument is that it's hard enough 
to get a home loan at the moment or to buy your first home. So being able to perhaps access your super towards that is, is something that younger people might want. Sure. Uh, their argument is also that in this current climate uh, where you know, where business is doing it tough, expecting businesses to pass on what is essentially a wage increase, albeit a deferred one through an increase in superannuation, will make doing business even harder for them at a climate like this. Perhaps that's true as well. This runs a little counter to that, but the other argument is that wages growth is so depressed. So if you want to see wages growth increase, you're undercutting the capacity of that. If you're increasing superannuation, you'd be better off to get it as a wage now, which also means it gets funneled straight into the economy as spending uh, almost instantaneously because it is a wage increase that goes straight in people's hip pockets. Again, I can see that argument as well. Now, a number of these arguments run counter to one another. You can't have them all. You can pick one or the other. You can't utilize them all at once. But I do see the arguments. I just profoundly disagree that they should be breaking a promise that they took to the election, that they should be repealing legislation that has already been contested and passed, uh, and indeed that they should be a bunch of hypocrites collecting over 15% super themselves while expecting workers on far lower salaries to only continue to get 9.5. When we are an ageing population, we know what the projected costs on the budget are going forward of that ageing if people don't have more self-sufficiency in retirement. Everybody would love to be able to buy a home sooner when they're younger and have access to their cash. This isn't about wants, it is about needs and the need for an aging population is for more self-sufficiency in retirement. And that's the interesting thing about the retirement review that they dropped under the cover of the Afghan report and probably didn't want people to read. It makes the point that yes, there is perhaps some short-term value in suspending uh, the, the increase in the compulsory super rate, but it also makes the much more profound point, which I think Paul Keating has talked about when he's talked about this as the architect of super, which is that, our system is infinitely better off as a consequence of the compulsory super that we have. Uh, and this is a really important point, Hugh. It only talks about, uh, if you like, the ability to hold back increasing super and having compulsory super that continues to rise if you do things like provide people access to reverse mortgages in a greater extent than they currently have to fund their own retirement. You can't just expect the taxpayer to pick up the you know, the cudgels on that one. I don't see the Liberal Party, even if they want to prevent super rising uh, or even remove the compulsory nature of it, I don't see them ever insisting that people don't draw a pension or don't draw on government funds, but they are forced to eat into their own home because they would politically consider that suicide. So, uh, you know, they want their cake and eat it here. They want to pick the eyes out of this retirement review that suit them, but they're not muscle up to the reality of the other parts of it, which essentially support the compulsory super system that we have. It's funny because another thing which has been used to attack super is this notion that people reach the age when they can access their super. They then go on a spree. They buy themselves the big, you know, I don't know, RV or something, travel around the country. They go on a cruise. They spend up large, spend five years of their healthy uh, retirement years just blowing the lot and then turning around and going on the pension. In fact, the opposite is, is seems to be the reality is that most people die with uh, super unspent. And in a sense, um, 
that makes sense because none of us has a date on our death. So therefore it's, it's prudent. It sh shows that Australians are actually prudent where they can be about their uh, retirement and, and that sort of somewhat straw man argument that super doesn't work because it just becomes a spending spree and doesn't actually help the, uh, the budget over the long term because they wind up on the pension anyway. You know, all the evidence seems to be pointing that that's not, that's not true. But, you know, I looked at, at Keating when he, he went up on 7.30. I think the only outfit that he'll, he'll go up on, it's very hard to get an interview with Paul Keating. Um, and he made the case that if you were to convert this 0.5% um, increase, 9.5 to 10% next year into a uh, cash, a wage rise, that it would be two cups of coffee a week for the average earner. And yet, if that average earner is young, uh, over time, that would amount to 100, perhaps $150,000 difference in their retirement income. Uh, mm. the, 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 the thing about it is, is that it has to be both compulsory and also preserved. So every, every one of these things, which says, pull it out, put it into your house, do all that kind of business, and removes its capacity to do the job that was set out for it. And he was, you know, he's getting old now, Paul Keating, but he still has cut through on making that case. And what staggers me is where have all the senior current labor figures been in terms of making this argument as coherently? Well, that, that is, that is a big issue because my worry uh, when it comes to the capacity of people who support the position that I do when it comes to superannuation, which I really think is so important in terms of planning for the aging of the population and for individuals retirement is that in the opposition ranks, there really isn't the horsepower to make the argument in a way that can be politically powerful. You know, could you imagine the liberal party even trying to go down this path if Paul Keating was still circling the corridors of Canberra uh, as a younger man arguing against them. You know, it would make his demolition of John Hewson and his GST in 1993 look like a walk in the park. He would tear them, politically speaking, limb from limb over this, I believe. Uh, and he would, you know, make the argument cogently. I don't see that passion nor that persuasiveness uh, in the rhetoric being run from the current opposition. Uh, and, and, and frankly, yeah, you've got similar problems in the government as well. They just happen to have the whip hand being in government and having won the last election and now presiding during a pandemic, which is bolstering their support rather than diminishing it. But the opposition really needs to find its charismatic spokesperson on this. And I don't know who that is, but I tell you what, they need to find them fast. If they're of the view that they should stop this train in motion because I get the impression that that is what is happening now. Uh, Scott Morrison is looking in that direction, but he's easily scared off Scott Morrison. He's a marketing man. He's not a policy thinker. So uh, if he senses political danger in this, uh, which comes from profound attack from the opposition on the merits of the issue, then I think he runs a mile from it because he doesn't believe in anything other than winning elections. So, uh, you know, that, that the opportunity is there to preserve this space. It's a matter of whether Labor's up to the task in opposition. It's funny, isn't it? Because if you look at the, the Morris, uh, sorry, the uh, Keating age, Keating was a kid who left school at 16 or whatever he was. Yep. Um, we've now got on the Labor front bench, you've got a, a, a PhD in Jim Chalmers who holds Keating's shadow portfolio, Treasury. Um, you've got uh, a professor of economics widely regarded globally in Andrew Lee, 
who's also on the labor benches. There is more intellectual firepower, at least on paper, by, uh, by a long way that are mustered in the current labor ranks. And yet there is no uh, connection between that and actually getting into people's living rooms or even getting into the, uh, into the tactical discussions of the government, where there's a sense that, that, a, that a hand is reaching in and shaking people by the throat and saying, um, this is bad for Australia. Here are the reasons why don't you dare. Um, you know, th- it, it is stark, the point that you've made about uh, this apparent it's, it's almost, there's a great, there's a book written about George W. Bush, how he became president with a great title called Ambling Towards Victory. And you get the sense that labor is ambling. It's not towards victory, but they are just ambling along at the moment. And that could be to the disadvantage of many people in the country. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, there really is an issue there for, for Labor being a little bit directionless. And, you know, we may not have the time to go into it in, in this podcast, but it brings us back to where they do or don't sit on climate change, what is or isn't happening with Joel Fitzgibbon at the moment. You know, there's divisions between left and right uh, in relation to Anthony Albanese's leadership. There's even divisions within the left faction. And all of that is the shenanigans of personalities and party organisation before we even get to the big policy debates where Labor has to work out what it stands for. It's almost a victim at a policy level of its own success so far around issues like Medicare that were once so contested but no longer are. It has, as you say, the horsepower in its ranks intellectually when it comes to economic debates, but they don't seem to be able to translate that. You know, I mean, as you mentioned, Jim Chalmers has a PhD in political science, but he was a chief of staff to a treasurer and there was a strong economic bent to a lot of his study. The PhD in economics is, of course, Andrew Lee. And then there's another one in there, too, whose name I've now forgotten. Um, and, you know, between them, they, they know the, the debates and they know where Labor needs to go. But it's a fractious bunch in their, in their parliamentary ranks. Uh, and, you know, they, they're not entirely sure what they want to fight and die on versus what they want to pivot on. Um, but I think super is one thing that they should really be taking the fight up. It's such an easily prosecuted argument apart from anything else, right? Like there's, the, there's all the nuance in the debate, which I think includes the value of Australia having an, a surplus of investment capital as a result of us having so much, so many trillions of dollars in superannuation accounts, which can then help with nation building and infrastructure spending and indeed wiping out current account deficits and all the rest of it. There's all those debates to have. But the simple argument, which is what I know Keating would prosecute so much more perfectly than the current mob uh, in his day, is just this idea of they want to keep your super below 10% when they're taking in super of over 15%. How the hell is that fair? You know, like everything else, you can just wipe to one side uh, in, as the nuance of the debate. That argument alone would be enough that a, a solid performer in opposition should be able to rip apart a government that tries to do this because it is just out and out hypocrisy. Another argument, we're going to take a break in a second, but the other argument is women. Um, you oh, know, I've seen in my, own, in my own wife's experience of, of uh, the interruptions to her working life as we've got our you know, three kids up and, and get going has made a huge dent in her super. And, uh, you know, anything which retards her capacity to catch that up already, she's miled behind. We're seeing reports about um, homelessness is at its steepest increase in women over 55. And, um, 
you know, if you can't make an argument based on that, then you're just not trying hard enough. Let's take a quick break. PBO, we'll be back in just a second. 10 News First Person brings you quality stories from the 10 News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. But it's about time that they started listening to the people. It's people power now. We will not be silent! Subscribe to 10 News First Person on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. And uh, let's have a little look overseas. We, you know, we talked about quarantine. Um, at least from quarantine, I can have a chat with you, PVO. Uh, the Prime Minister, we remind ourselves, is in quarantine because he made that trip to Japan uh, to see the new Japanese Prime Minister. Uh, he's also, by the by, um, given a lecture into the UK to the Policy Exchange at one of the favourite uh, forums for um, Tony Abbott uh, to go <clears> and give speeches. He's given a few over there. But let's look to the Japan business and the speech they gave overnight because we see a continued um, uh, effort by the Prime Minister to, uh, at the same time, bind up those who, uh, uh, there's no sugaring the pill here, who are worried about China into stronger connections. This is a, a military uh, exchange arrangement with Japan, while at the same time try to convince China that it's not actually about them at all. This really is going to be Australia's dance for the century, isn't it? Oh, look, it is. It's, it's a fascinating one, actually. You know, the Prime Minister is trying to make it very clear in the wake of that trip to Japan that Australia, and, and I, I don't mean this as pejoratively as it sounds, but that Australia can walk both sides of this fence. You know, our economic relationship with China, uh, our cultural, tradition, traditional and security relationship with the US, which in no small part has a strong economic relationship too. But I wonder, you know, how realistic that hope is depending on what does happen in the decades to come because it really does look like the US and China um, are careering towards if not a war a cold war um, a la the Soviet Union. Um, I saw, saw an interesting piece the other day um, you know sort of suggesting that Taiwan could be the equivalent um, of the Ferdinand uh, assassination moment from World War One, that's a particularly pessimistic outlook. Uh, well, on, on I'm its watching own. Taiwan like crazy. I can tell you, as are others. So. Yeah, well, it's, and it, I say it's pessimistic, but it's not out of the question, which is of itself concerning, right? So, you know, there's a lot to worry about there, and Australia is the ham in the sandwich in this. Our desire is to try to not lose our moral compass when it comes to China in terms of being forward-leaning and critical of what we see as, as wrong there. But by the same token, uh, if, if, if China decides uh, to have a crack uh, at Australia economically, boy, it can do some damage. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should kowtow to it. So, you know, th th there's so many moving parts, I guess is my point, in, in the Australia-China relationship vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with the US and our security partners, which include Japan, uh, with that visit, obviously, that the Prime Minister made. Um, so it's Look, it's, it's, it's the big issue going forward. And, and it all comes down to, in my view, at least to some extent, how quickly does India continue to rise? And the answer would seemingly be not quickly enough, as China does, to act as a sort of a democratic counterweight to it. 
Yes, indeed. You look at China, there's three young activists there in Hong Kong are going on trial at the moment. They face five years jail or, or, or more. One of them is Joshua Wong, uh, who led the Umbrella Movement of, a couple of years back. And uh, th they're facing jail for uh, organizing a peaceful assembly. Uh, this is in the nature of the new grip into what was previously a fairly liberal uh, environment to, to be in Hong Kong. Um, it shows the influence of China over there. The, the, the difference, in a sense, when we talk about Cold Wars, is that during, because I'm old enough to remember it, the Soviet Union versus US type thing, there was nothing really that the US, uh, sorry, that the Soviet Union made that was of any interest to the West. Uh, so it's essentially, they, they were totally different orbits uh, economically. And in fact, the whole world was more or less divided up into which economic orbit you were in. And quite clearly, the one that wasn't sustainable was the Soviet model. Whereas the interconnection in our economic orbits between the United States and with China and so on means that this is a, a much different and more complicated thing. It would be, it would be very difficult just to, to cease the economic ties. And trade has long been argued as being one of the factors that allows for uh, greater prospects for peace because... The idea being is that you don't go and get into an enormous scrap with someone that you're doing business with. But uh, there's no doubt that the, the, you know, the strategic forming, the Japan uh, decision sends an enormous signal. And the Chinese, who historically still retain enormous resentments and loathings towards Japan because of um, wartime atrocities, uh, you know, before... Pearl Harbor, of course, the Japanese were already in China uh, committing atrocities. Uh, and so, so it's not hard in a nationalistic argument in China to see Australia going in with them as a big mark against us. Um, but uh, that may have to be as it, as it is, as, mm. as we act in our own interests, I guess. But Hugh, you're, you're talking about the smaller issues. The bigger issue is that the Prime Minister in ISO uh, was standing there in shorts and thongs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, this is interesting because um, this, this is fascinating because Scott Morrison, the marketing man, is in isolation with a personal photographer, as indeed I am. Uh, you can expect a stream of photographs of me shambling around the place in a pair of tracky decks and a T-shirt unshaven. Um, no one should go into isolation without a personal photographer. But one of the photographs, which has got a life of its own, is, is him with his jacket on and his shirt, you've doubtless seen it, um, on his phone and then panned down and he's wearing his boardies. Uh, and, and the thing about this is, is that nothing... And that gets released. So nothing about this is accidental. He sent that out there, I suppose, to try to create a, um, a relatable image of himself in this time of lockdown. But at the same time, people are savvy enough about the media to say, well, A, why are you in there for the personal photographer? Why are you putting this out? It, is, it, is it worth it for Scott Morrison to say, put out that image, given the amount of can I put it, this shit that gets heaped on his head, or is the shit only being heaped on his head in Twitter and it doesn't matter and people out there in the real world go, oh, good on you. Good on you, Scotty. Yeah, I think his target is those people, as you put it, in the real world, you know, swinging electors in outer metropolitan seats that see it when it gets splashed in the tabloid, unaware that the photo has been taken by his official photographer, unaware that it's entirely stage managed, unaware or not caring, frankly, in the idea that, He's obviously pre-calculated that he will go into isolation with his official photographer at the lodge so that he can have these sort of 
marketing photos taken and therefore build stories and narratives off them in you know newspapers tabloids that that will give him a friendly run and won't even mention that it's a, an official photographer who's taken the photographs you know it's sort of and there's one of him on, on his exercise bike um which you know it has Going like fury which, yeah, well, was, I would I would hazard a guess that he probably isn't on there as much in reality as he is in the pictures, frankly. Um, so you know, it, it's 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 just it's it's Scott bullshit Morrison. Let's just call it out. It's now he's not the first prime minister to be engaged in marketing, and he certainly won't be the last. Um, but the reason he's called Scotty from marketing is because he does it, to my knowledge as much as anyone, if not more so. Kevin Rudd would be his biggest rival because he was a bit into all of this crap as well. But what, what gets me about it is it's just, it's just so disingenuous. You know, I mean, unless you know the photograph, it doesn't say that it's an official photographer. Unless you know, you don't realise that they've thought beforehand, you know what, it'd be a pretty clever move to have the official photographer who's only going to put out images that we're happy with in ISO with the PM so that we can get all sorts of marketing advantage out of it. I mean, it just, I don't know, I guess it has to be part of politics, but it's, 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 it's the part of it that just makes me sit there and go, you know what, if you had some substance in a more meaningful way on a host of policy and important framing debates, I would be more forgiving of your marketing moments, but you're defined by your marketing and you occasionally roll the dice and get a six on a policy front rather than actually land on it in some meaningful way. I would hazard a guess that he spends more time thinking about how to do his marketing moves than about major policy choices. And maybe some people will think that's unfair. I would love to be wrong, Hugh. I would love to be wrong. I would love to wake up one day and go, bang, here's a massive policy agenda that I never thought Scotty from marketing would be available to think about. But I'm not going to be surprised. And if I am surprised, I'm happy to have it played back at me because I would love to be wrong about that. Yes, he could be a long-term prime minister who, uh, who does seem to go from one marketing thing to another. But I'm interested in the justiciable practical elements of this. Did the official photographer go with them to Japan, in which case, fair enough? Um, I assume so. And so then he comes back and he's got to go into quarantine. But I've been to the lodge. It's a nice sort of house. It's not enormously large. So does that mean that the uh, official photographer is sort of bumping into him over the breakfast bowls uh, because he's in isolation with the prime minister as well? So, um, you know, g'day, how are you going? Very well. Taking any good pictures lately? Well, you know, I don't know. Should we, how about another one of us? Uh, let's see, what, what can I do? I can look, uh, you know, Jeffersonian uh, at my desk perhaps uh, for a moment, or, you know, all this kind of conversation that might go on because is the photographer locked in there with him? And if he's not locked in there with him in the lodge, is he actually, in, is the prime minister actually in isolation? Because if the photographer is coming and going, um, well, this would be the better article, Hugh. I mean, I'd love to see a splash that's not just doing a little bit of marketing for the PM, but actually uh, that goes through the granular detail of that. Is he there taking photographs from a distance? If so, is he in a hazmat suit um, because the, the Prime Minister is meant to be in isolation? Uh, or is he in isolation with him? Uh, you know, was he brought on the official tour I, I am imagining he went on the tour to japan and they've now decided to put him in isolation with scott morrison at the lodge because there's the occasional spare room there that would strike me as what they've chosen to do but who knows um these aren't the things that i mean what's next hugh what's next i mean you've got this kind of marketing what, what are we going to see the prime minister starting to 
go on social media talking about building a chicken coop with the kids? I mean, is it going to get that low? Is he going to go that far? Or has he already done that already? Uh, he'd be under his third or fourth chicken coop by now, I'm sure. He's got <laughs> nothing else to do. It is, oh, he it has is done that. He has done that. He has done uh, the chicken coop. Of course yeah, he has. A, yeah, he's a good dad, man. He's, he's just dad. a regular bloke, Hugh. And he loves the Sharkies, bloke. too. See, ever since he left the the Sharkies. Oh, he loves the Sharkies. Ever since he left the eastern suburbs of Sydney, having a disdain for rugby league and a preference for uh, for rugby union, uh, which is the game he played at school, um, a GPS school, no less, before moving on uh, to say that he preferred the AFL, I believe, uh, to to other sports because he looked quite like the look of it. Uh, He's now a Sharkies man. And that's because he grew up in Cronulla once he moved there uh, after losing a pre-selection uh, to Michael Toke before getting the central party to confirm him as the person uh, that moved into the Shire. So he's a Shire man through and through now that he's moved there. Uh, and he's a rugby league man through and through uh, now that he's converted to an interest in it because he's just one of us, Hugh. He's just Mate, a man look, of people. Look, well, look, I'm going to stop this Morrison, um, uh, you know, <laughs> fun though it is, just to remind you that Ben Chifley, famous, you know, beloved Labour figure, famous always for having a pipe clenched between his teeth. It turned out, didn't like pipes. He preferred cigars. And in Is fact, in his right? private oh, moments, God. he smoked cigars. But he was aware that a cigar was perceived by the good working men and women of Australia as an elitist uh, uh, gasper, uh, whereas the pipe was seen as more egalitarian at the time and more a working man's um, you know, tobacco uh, delivery device. And so therefore he stuck with the pipe. <laughs> so uh, Scott Morrison uh, might, be, uh, might have marketing tools uh, in his head at all times, but he's not the first. And, um, no, that is true. And uh, you know, long gone are the days where you could be a successful prime minister, electorally successful like a Robert Menzies, and literally be prime minister for 17 consecutive years before retiring on your own terms. And when you fronted a rally uh, and somebody yells out, Mr Menzies, what are you going to do about housing? You could actually just say back to them, put an H in front of it and it not destroy you electorally Absolutely, has been, well, been out of touch. But this is fascinating. This goes to a fascinating thing because um, Troy Bramston's most recent book about uh, uh, about uh, Menzies, which I enjoyed reading because I hadn't really read much about Menzies. And it reminded me that he was a guy who used to have a special because he loved Carlton Football Club and he used to have a, a special ramp built so he could drive his Bentley up so that he could watch the, the right. Carlton Blues go round without, without having to get out of the car. But he was a guy, that was the time when he was a scholarship boy. He was the son of a journalist. He grew up in Japarit in, in Western, in the Mallee, basically in Western Victoria, in a house which had a dirt floor. And that's where he was born. And he was a scholarship kid through school and went on to university and was a brilliant young barrister, was very young King's Council as it then was in those days. But, but Menzies, uh, it shows you how much things have changed. Menzies saw the path to power as to accumulate grandeur and status and elitism as being mm. necessary to convince the audience that he was worth backing. And then you swing it forward, not that far, not that many years later on, and you've got um, as you've just described, Morrison in a, in a frantic uh, effort to, to show that he's the ordinary bloke and not the rugby-playing GPS elite schoolboy. And I really should say, um, you know, as much as I, I bag Scott Morrison's marketing, uh, absolutely, you know, others do it. I, I think he does it more than most. But, I, like, I, I do want as a counterweight to make the point that I, I was every bit as infuriated 
with the spin and the marketing that came from Kevin Rudd for a long time. I remember being really frustrated that the Australian people had such high levels of support for Kevin Rudd early on in his prime ministership after he took over from John Howard, because I just thought that he was complete puffery myself at the time. And I watched him do this over and over again with all these marketing stunts as his popularity soared. And I was really losing faith in the Australian people. And then it all eventually came crashing down, of course, for him. And, and my faith in our democracy, Hugh, was restored at that point. Uh, yeah, Kevin Rudd, Scott Morrison, two people that could sit together on a desert island uh, in isolation and have a really good conversation about the spin and the marketing of politics. Do you think they'd throw sand at each other's faces? I, I think they might. Um, <laughs> Only if they had an official photographer to show who didn't start it. <laughs> we, we should, um, before we start sounding embittered, uh, we should call a halt to it because time is upon us. But uh, PVO, next time I speak to you, I'll be out of quarantine and the better for it. Um, we'll talk soon. Okay, see you, man. Thank you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speak. 